It's the Check Your Brain podcast, and uh, we were talking, if you heard the other podcast, talking about the best players that probably could be in the Hall of Fame, maybe borderline, or should be in the Hall of Very Good. And we're talking to Rick Morris from FantasyDraftHelp.com and the FDH Lounge. And and by the way, it's Tony Mazur. Thank you, folks, for subscribing and being a part of my usual nonsense. But I don't think this is nonsense today. We're getting into serious topics, talking about baseball players from our youth. (laughs) Exactly. And, uh, you know, for, for anybody out there that's uh, missing out on this, uh, I won't be. I'll be able to, able to hear even uh, us two talking behind the paywall here, and I love it. Look at that. Now we can curse, too. But Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the Hall of Very Good is a – I don't know if anyone has actually termed it that or if it's just something that I came up with in the last few years, but it's pretty self-explanatory. These are guys that I think are – Pretty good players and multi-time All-Stars, but I don't necessarily think they dominated their era. They got kind of wrapped up in whether they were a part of a championship team and a championship caliber. They had a great manager. Uh, The culture was really good. You know, you could talk about guys like from great Yankee teams or great Cardinals or Dodger teams that just ended up going to the Hall of Fame based on, oh, I was on that great Yankee Dodger Cardinal team. Uh, and their, but their stats by comparison don't really look that great. Now, I went with more, for my list, more modern-day guys because I think it's unfair to start comparing dead ball era Hall of Famers to nowadays because, of course, they're not going to look great by comparison because of the amount of weightlifting that's gone on in the sport and nutrition and the ballparks and uh, how the baseballs have changed and all the equipment. That's when when everyone says about Tiger Woods, is Tiger Woods the greatest golf forever? Is he better than you know Ben Hogan? And it's like, well, give Ben Hogan Tiger Woods' clubs, see how things would be. And I, I think it would be a lot different for Ben Hogan and uh, even Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer or Seve and all these other guys that play with today's equipment. Who knows? So that's why I kind of went with this era like – you know, within the last, you know, I guess the modern era of baseball, because there's a guy who's in the Hall of Fame. This is a true story. I've talked about it on uh, this podcast before. I don't know if I've told you, Rick. So there was a guy named Elmer Flick. Do you know this name? Uh, I do. I do. I, I don't think I've heard this story from you, but I'm aware of him and a little bit about his career. So Elmer Flick was basically, he's another one of those guys who was a, you know, not a power hitter, but he was of the right at the turn of the century the i think william mckinley was president when he was really starting off and okay. he ends up uh, playing for the whatever cleveland baseball team whatever they were called at that time and elmer flick who was from my area where i grew up and played for the you know what we now know as the guardians not the indians or the spiders or the naps or whatever you want to call them and he was playing for he was playing for the cleveland team and Teams were really starting to get interested in him and thinking that, oh, hey, you know, we should probably get some get somebody who's going to help us win a championship. So the Detroit Tigers offered Ty Cobb to Cleveland for Elmer Flick, and Cleveland said no. Wow. They said no to Ty Cobb, and not long after, because of poor medical, you know, breakthrough lack thereof of breakthroughs, uh, he gets appendicitis, and Elmer Flick has to retire. And that was it. That was it for Elmer That's Flick. That's an incredible story. But he was, uh, so he ended up retiring and he moved to his hometown of Bedford, Ohio. And he had a farm in Bedford 
and he built houses, and his house was my childhood home. Wow. Elmer Flick was it was he I I'm pretty positive he built my childhood home. A guy who eventually you know, I think he died in 1971, and by 1963, they started going through some of the dead ball era uh, players and who, who they, uh, how they were able to be affected. And he, I think he led the league in stolen bases and triples or RBIs or whatever it was one year. And they said, yeah, I think he's worthy of the Hall of Fame. So they gave him a call, and he made it to the Hall of Fame in the early 1960s and uh, passed away about 50 years ago. But they, uh, a few years ago in my home, my old hometown of Bedford – they erected a statue of Elmer Flick, and if you go right behind it, you see the Mazer family is as a little brick there next to the Elmer Flick statue. That is incredible, and uh, that that almost I've never heard of anything else in baseball that that reminds me of. Uh, you'll like this. You 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 and I both have a taste for this kind of baseball minutia. Uh, so my 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 day job stuff being in construction media and, and working in that, I've I've become aware. Uh, in, in recent years of the big home builder in the Southwest, particularly Arizona, Del Webb. Do you know how that came to have its name? I do not. Del Webb was, I think it was general manager maybe, but those Yankee dynasty teams, he was there like when Casey Stengel was there in the 40s and 50s. And like from going out every year for spring training, he would just be like, oh, this looks like good real estate here. Oh, oh, okay, this looks good. And like as Yankee general manager was just like swooping around, buying up all this crap and, and built this company that went on. To, and I think they've been taken over by other things subsequently, but they keep the name. But, you know, it's just like a, a baseball guy doing that. So Elmer Flick was not the only one doing it out there. Who knows how many baseball people were building how many things across America over the years. Yeah, it's like all those uh, actors in California back in the 40s that bought up all that land and Never had to worry about it, like Bob Hope and and uh, Fred McMurray. They owned so much land out there that they never had to worry. They, they, they didn't have to act in anything the rest of their lives, but they still did because, you know, they had to penny pinch and <laughs> use coupons well, at the grocery. You know, along similar bonds. lines, to, Tony, to what I was just saying, too, I came across something today. I think it was in Rancho Mirage, California, and it was at the intersection of Bob Hope Drive and Gerald Ford Drive. And I'm going, where else in America would you have this? Oh, right? yeah, Only absolutely. In California. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, yes. so I, I kept these ones just because they were more modern guys that we can debate, and especially guys that we either grew up with or they were maybe just before or guys that we've just seen in the last few years that have mm-hmm. been in, have been inducted into the Hall of Fame that I just go, mm, I don't think so. Because at least the last one, the, the last podcast that we did, there were there were debates where you could say, yeah, this guy's borderline. This guy, yeah, he definitely should be. Or, nah, probably not. He's just off the list. So those guys, I would think, would go into the Hall of Very Good. Well, now we have guys who I think should be in the Hall of Very Good, but they're in the Hall of Fame. And uh, my first one, we'll start with Catcher again, was one we mentioned in the previous podcast, and that's Ted Simmons. And you're going to see a theme for, on my end with guys that Ted Simmons – again. A very good player. Like, I thought he was a very good catcher for his time, and especially a, a position where, except for guys like Daryl Porter or Johnny Bench, catcher you or Carlton Fisk, you weren't seeing a lot of offensive production, and you did from Ted Simmons. But one thing that you'll hear in a theme that I have throughout this podcast is, is <clears throat> you know, we, we've talked about longevity, but what about Hall of Fame ballot longevity? 
And these guys that end up getting in in the final ballot because they feel bad for him, it seems like a participation trophy. And Ted Simmons was one of those guys that over the years they went, yeah, just throw him in the Hall of Fame. And you're going to see a couple of these that I'm going to bring up that if they weren't good enough when they were on the ballot the first time, why are they good now? Is it just because the game is not the same and we kind of look at catching and other positions in a different way? But I think if Ted Simmons wasn't good enough to be on the Hall of Fame ballot throughout the 90s and early 2000s, why was he all of a sudden good by you know 2018 or whenever it was he got inducted? That's a very good question. And, and again, I think in some instances, guys get a reputation as having been overlooked previously. And I think that happened with Simmons over the long haul. So, he, so he's Susan Lucci. Uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, kind of a, although hers when she won it was a Lifetime Achievement Award and the Hall of Fame is supposed to be a Lifetime Achievement Award. So the parallels only go so far. But, you know, I think in the case of Simmons, it's interesting because I mentioned that when we were talking on the previous segment. I was going to put him down. Uh, as somebody that uh, should make the Hall of Fame, because uh, like I said, I hadn't uh, double-checked to see that he made it in the last couple of years. So my instinct on him is kind of different because he was a guy where, similar to Scott Rowland, when I, or not, not Scott Rowland, uh, Gary Sheffield. When I looked at his numbers, they were better than I expected them being, not at a Gary Sheffield level, mind you, but you mentioned Daryl Porter, right? And I remembered him being maybe slightly better than Daryl Porter, but he was better than Porter by a margin that was greater than I thought it was. So a lot of times it's just an interesting thing in life when it's relative to our own expectations. And, and Ted Simmons, when I really looked at his numbers, they exceeded my expectations. So that's why I give him the benefit of the doubt. Do you have any other catchers on that list? I do. I have only one. And uh, again, as I've kind of alluded to uh, in, in the previous uh, segment that we did, uh, the guys that were really kind of the slappies, the defensive specialists, these are the guys where I'm, I'm going to get the eviction notices ready. And uh, Ray Schalk with a 253 lifetime batting average, I don't want to reduce him just to that, but I guess I'm going to. So, yeah, I mean, a great defensive catcher, but, uh, I mean, look, great defensive catchers are a dime a dozen throughout history. And I'm not saying he wasn't one of the very best, but, uh, you know, if you're gonna if you're going to put him in, uh, you know, where do we draw the line here, essentially? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, ha, he was not on my list, so I didn't get a chance to look at his stats. Well, he's not there. modern era. Yeah, I went a little further back on, on some, but not all of these. So, first base, uh, another guy, I, because we talked about Don Mattingly, there was another guy I forgot at first base that could be up for discussion who's not in the Hall of Fame is Al Oliver. Yes, looked at him. Looked at him. He, he, He's, he's got a good case for being right on the cusp, I think. But another guy that I looked at that I just look at his stats and I go, okay, just because he was part of the big red machine, but Tony Perez, I mean, good player. You know, he was a slugger for his time, but I, I look at 379 career home runs. He was like a 275 hitter, but he was part of that great team. And it just seemed like almost everybody who was a part of that team got the – uh, you know, got the a- accolades. I'm not saying that Tony Perez wasn't a good player because obviously he was, and he played for a, a long time, and he was very likable in Cincinnati. I mean, for God's sake, Marge, Marge Schott liked him. Right. So, uh, but I, I thought that I just, I, I don't know, Tony Perez, I, I think by today's uh, comparison, really is, uh, is he's, he's one of those guys that, I mean, he has less home runs than Fred McGriff. He has, right. uh, he's just, he was a good power guy for his time, 
But even at his time, there were probably even a lot better first basemen that I would have put on the list above him. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, you know one of the things he probably does have in his favor is I think if I remember correctly, seventy six might have been his last year in Cincinnati because I believe I remember Pete Rose referencing that when Cincinnati really started to get cheap and broke up the dynasty, that was one of the first things to go was Tony Perez. If I'm remembering it yep, correctly, seventy six so, was his last year. Then he went to Montreal. Yeah. Because I've, I've read a couple of Pete Rose's books, and I remember him bitching about that, that, that that was the beginning of, you know, before they waved bye-bye to Rose, and they really, 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 but which, again, that was a self-inflicted end of the dynasty at the time when free agency was just coming, and they decided they wanted to cling to the whole small market crap and just, you know, shutter the whole thing. So as far as, you know, they, they went on to make the playoffs in 79 without him at least, but they didn't, you know, hit anywhere near the heights. But I don't find that to be persuasive. I agree with you. And, uh, you know, a more extreme and unforgivable, you know, uh, extension of, of the type of argument for putting him in would be what Bill Simmons does. Like, you know, Robert Horry is one of the elite players of all time. He belongs on a top 75 list. Yeah, Will it's Perdue should be thing. in the Hall of Fame because he won a lot of championships. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so, you know, it, it's that kind of mentality of, you know, again, is Tony Perez more deserving in his sport than Robert Horry was in his? Yes. But, I mean, still, it's the same kind of an argument, like you said, of the people who are really, really, you know, on one of the all-time great dynasties. you got to draw the line somewhere because, you know, what are we getting into if you don't? Dave Concepcion, with all due respect to him. Yeah, and, and another guy that after he left Cincinnati, he just didn't have the same career. And I uh, I just always remember watching the 1983 World Series. Not Obviously, I was not born yet, but I remember going back and going, boy, they really tried to recreate the Big Red Machine with that team several years after. They had Joe Morgan, they had Tony Perez, and Pete Rose playing for that team. Gee, no wonder why they got beat by the Orioles that year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's always interesting to see whenever uh, you know teams would, would try to do something like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Perez is a guy where, again, he, he was he was part of that entire thing here. But, you know, I mean, if you look at it like the Indians lineup of 95, I mean, basically, is, isn't Tony Perez basically just the rich man's Paul Sorrento? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically. <laughs> um, and did you have anybody else at first base? Uh, I did not. Most of mine are cloistered around the middle infield. Okay. So let's uh, let's head towards the middle infield, and you might have this one on the list too. And my uh, at second base, I only had one, and he was another one of those guys that uh, he was on that veterans ballot, and they put him in just because he had one really good moment, and that was Bill Mazarowski. And I was I, I actually the only time I've ever been to Cooperstown was the year that Mazarowski, Kirby Puckett, and I'll get to Kirby because he is on the list too, and Dave Winfield ended up going to the Hall of Fame that year. Um, it was kind of neat going to see that, but and and I've gone to Pittsburgh and I've gone to Forbes Field, where right where the area that Mazarowski hit the ball over the. Which, by the way, fun fact: who was the left fielder for the Yankees after that home run went over the fence? No idea. Yogi Berra. In left? They oh, that's incredible. Yogi Berra playing left field, and he's the one that when he realizes the ball's going way over, he's kind of like tra- they show that slow motion shot of the ball going over the wall at Forbes Field, and um, you see Yogi Berra kind of peeling away from it. Okay. 
But uh, and and they have part part of the wall of Forbes Field still there. It's right off the campus of University of Pittsburgh. But the problem is the area where Mazeroski hit the ball. They kind of turn into a hill. I don't know if it was built on a landfill or something, but it's a hill. So the area where the ball dropped is like on a and in the middle of a street as you're heading towards a cafeteria or something. But uh, Bill Mazeroski, nice career. Played for two championships in 60 and 71, but I it just does not have the stats for a Hall of Famer to me. I, I agree. I think he hit like 260 lifetime. He was a guy that I put on my list reluctantly. He had a really swank baseball magazine in the 80s. I remember buying it as a kid. And uh, so I, I like Maz, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I have to agree with you. One of his contemporaries also, uh, and, and again, his biggest year was the year before Louis Aparicio with the, uh, the go-go mm-hmm. socks in 59. And that's another guy that, uh, again, I think got in there on being very, very fond in the memory of baseball fans and everything like that. And I think, uh, again, you know, getting in there clearly beyond what his numbers were because, and I know you've said previously, you know, you don't like to go too far back in history and stuff. I think, especially when you're talking dead ball era and some of the times in baseball of less power, that that is absolutely, you know, you, you can't go apples to apples on, on that kind of stuff. The one thing that I do think kind of works apples to apples through most of history, maybe not the last couple of years with the uppercut swings, but batting averages. Yes. And I realize that, again, you know, analytics doesn't think batting averages really matter for much of anything. But if you go back over the course of history, uh, you know, it's one of the things where, you know, that's what separates us from the animals, as people like to say about species, right? And, uh, you know, Aparicio just didn't have a high enough batting average either for me to, to agree with him being in there. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned batting average because uh, one thing when they you go against the steroid era and they start talking about, oh, these home runs, these 600-foot home runs, but you realize that guys like Jose Canseco and McGuire were still hitting about 300. They, right. You get guys like Joey Gallo nowadays who's hitting 150 or Chris Davis before he retired and he just stole from the Orioles. Um, These guys were hitting like 100, but they would hit 40 home runs. So at least in the steroid era, you were getting guys like even Sammy Sosa. You say, oh, he was on steroids. Sosa was still hitting 320, so he was putting the ball in play. It just wasn't going over the fence every time. And this launch angle has ruined the game, in my opinion, and all these advanced stats. And Batting average should be the uh, what you're going to look at, and you. I think in baseball in 2021, I think there may have been maybe like seven guys, eight guys. I could be wrong, but it was around that who hit over 300. I remember when I was growing up that you you had Wade Boggs and you had Tony Gwynn that were winning batting titles, and they were hitting 350. George Brett was putting the ball in play, and when I'm seeing that, uh, what's his name uh, from the Astros won the batting title this year, Yuli Gurriel, and I think he hit 320. 320 was a nice season at one time, but that but it wasn't batting average where you weren't winning the batting title with that. That was almost like 1968 because I remember I think it was the the, the league batting champion was maybe like 301 or something like that. Like it was it yeah, was, that was really Yastrzemski, I believe. Yeah, Yastrzemski, and it wasn't that a triple crown season? I think, so, I think yeah. or yeah. So I mean, it was. You know, the, the circumstances there were different because offense was down across the board. That's why they lowered the pitching mound. But, yeah, I mean, to guys like me and you, you know, batting average does really mean uh, a lot looking through history because it is one of the great kind of levelers. You can look at it for any point in history and, like, 
if you're looking at the Hall of Fame stats of a guy like from 1916 and you go, oh, but he only hit three home runs. Well, that was the dead ball era, right? You're not really going to look at that as much versus I always made a comparison between the 30s and the 90s when people said we've never really been here before because the 30s were pretty wide open as far as that goes. One of my all-time favorite players to to learn about obviously wasn't there for him, but Jimmy Fox, mm-hmm. you know, that was his day and age when he was really kind of booming at it. So baseball goes through boom and bust kind of things throughout time when it comes to power. So you can't really look at RBIs, home runs, possibly even runs in the same kind of a way. But but batting average, that's what I come back to on a lot of these kind of things here. And, and again, I, I don't really ever want to hear that, uh, you know, 258 was respectable for the time, which we're going to get to that in a moment. Oh, yeah. Uh, We'll have to do a separate podcast of underappreciated players. And I think Carl Yastrzemski is one of the top underappreciated players because you realize what, you know, him being great in the late 60s and winning that uh, triple crown. By the 70s, you had Jim Rice, you had uh, Evans, you had uh, Fred Lynn wins an MVP in his rookie season. And Yastrzemski moves over to first base, and he's still great there. And then he moves back to the outfield uh, when when Fred Lynn was gone, and and, and yeah. he was a DH for a little bit too. But boy, was he a, just a good player! That whenever you bring up some of the greats of all time, Yastrzemski is never brought up. I don't know why. That's an excellent point, and and yes, it's a thing where and they and and, and again, as I said before. Uh, you know, I, I mean, on an emotional level, I'm very anti-Chowd being from the North Coast, but it is a thing where I will give respect where it's due. And, you know, when you get to the New England area, they don't underrate him. They see him as being a worthy successor for Ted Williams oh, yeah. with the stipulation that there's never going to be another Ted Williams, but to come in and be a legend after him. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree with you on Yastrzemski. Uh, and then we, we kind of mentioned that my shortstops uh, in the previous podcast, but I, I was talking about Ozzie Smith, that he was kind of, uh, he he was, his defense, but I, mean, his, I remember his first left-handed home run. He had never hit a ball left-handed until he hit one off Tom Needenfewer in the 1985 uh, NLCS. And so the guy had no power. He really, I don't even think he had a, a year where he had more than a couple of home runs. And I'm not saying that that's the ultimate qualifier but yeah he was a great defensive player and that was that was it if we're gonna put great defensive guys and then put Keith Hernandez in then but uh then I also mentioned Alan Trammell in the previous podcast because if you're going to put Alan Trammell in the Hall of Fame why not Lou Whitaker uh and then the other one I had uh, just I think because of the era and because of who he was was Phil Rizzuto yes and those are all very good picks. By the way, with uh, with Ozzie Smith, you you put the ball on the tee for me here because as somebody who was alive at that time and was watching that, I believe that was a late afternoon game on NBC, one of the all-time great jinx moments in the history of TV because they put up a graphic like, Ozzie Smith has not hit a home run all year. <laughs> they flashed it right before he hit that. I'll never forget it. And clearly that is the kind of trivia that my dad would really laugh at me for remembering. But, uh, you know, yeah, it, it goes to show you on him. I completely agree with you about Ozzie Smith. Well, you, you uh, by, by the way, you mentioned with the Cardinals and uh, jinxing and graphics. If you remember a couple of years or the year before that with, with the Sandberg game, and that was a Saturday yeah. afternoon, Bob Costas is calling the game, and Willie McGee hits for the cycle. And they said, well, there's no doubt about who's going to be the player of the game here. It's Willie McGee hits for the cycle, and Sandberg hits those two home runs to bring the Cubs back. And not only that, he put the Cubs on the map in that 84 season. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was uh, that was a lot of 
uh, excitement to be able to uh, watch back then. Those those games of the week were uh, were just awesome. And, uh, and and a lot of times, look, Ozzie Smith, uh, I'm not going to lie, made him a lot better uh, by his presence, but that doesn't put you in the Hall of Fame by itself. I agree with you. You go further back in history, I referenced 258, Rabbit Moranville, who I think was a Veterans Committee choice. That one's always stuck in my craw uh, of, of just, you know, a lot of his, his homies that played with him, like, oh, he was a nice guy. He was a great, you know, glove. Let's put him in. That one, you know, I mean, his family must think I have something against him for as much as I bring him up in every setting like this. But, you know, I, I don't, but he doesn't belong there. Uh, some other old-time guys, too. Uh, you know, Freddie Landstrom being another guy that was all glove, no hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rizzuto, Pee Wee Reese. I mean, there's a couple of these guys here where, uh, again, and, and Rizzuto and Reese, and, and look, you know, me and you are guys who revere the history of baseball and whatever, and notwithstanding Rizzuto being a Yankee, I, I take no pleasure in saying I would pull their plaques. I really don't, because that's an era of history. I wish more people understood who those guys were. I wish more people understood about how great, you know, 50s baseball was, you know, and before and after that, but certainly 50s baseball. But that doesn't mean, again, that I think they belong in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying to uh, third base. I really didn't have much for third base because that's, that's another position that when we were talking about Scott Rowland, that there's not a lot of them in there, and there's just a, just a couple that just jump out. But the, the recent example, and not necessarily his fault, and I think this was a – and I'm going to bring up a local reference here in a couple of minutes, but Ron Santo, mm-hmm. who was my mom's favorite player, because my mom was raised in Chicago, and she mm-hmm. loved uh, uh, Ron Hundley, and she loved uh, um, uh, Fergie Jenkins and some of those guys who played on the Cubs, and – uh, but she loved Ron Santo as a third baseman. A lot of people did, and he had good stats. But it, it, again, another guy that he he ends up retiring, and for many years he's on the ballot, and then he finally drops off, and then they put him in. But I think at that point they had taken his legs off because he had diabetes, and they they put him in the Hall of Fame as just like, oh well, hey, sorry you're sick, or sorry you just died. Here's Ron Santo going to the Hall of Fame, and that's what the NFL did with Gene Hickerson which was just, uh, it was ungodly what they did with him, is that for yes. so many years he's on the ballot, and is Gene Hickerson going to make it? And you, he has three running, Hall of Fame running backs he used to block for. And then they finally decide in 2007 to put Gene Hickerson in the Hall of Fame, and he's on death's door in a wheelchair, and they have Jim Brown and Leroy Kelly, and they're pushing him out on the stage. I'm like, I can't even enjoy the fact that he's in the Hall of Fame because you waited so long. Tony, that's one of the things that embitters me most as far as people being mistreated in sports because anybody you know like us from Cleveland that knows you know the history of Cleveland sports knows how deserving that guy was. And waiting until uh, usually they wait till somebody's dead. This was the middle ground of he was, I think, pretty much all kind of stroked out at that point and whatever. He was still alive in body, not so much in mind. And when just being in that horrible purgatory and not being able to enjoy it, the, the closest that I come uh, to anybody doing that was uh, once again, baseball. And what they did with uh, waiting until Buck O'Neill died. And, yeah. and that was unforgivable because here's the thing. We could sit here and we can debate and, and is it apples and oranges as far as, you know, Negro League stats and whatever. But MLB, like the other ones here, they have game building type things here. I mean, Buck O'Neill, whether he deserved it or not, as a member, you know, as a player on the field, whatever, 
what the guy meant as far as keeping the history of the Negro Leagues alive and everything like that uh, as, as, as a symbol of the game, as everything he did for the game of baseball, undeniably deserving of being in there. And it's criminal it didn't happen in his lifetime. Yeah. It's, it, you know, and it, again, it's one of those, then put him in or don't put him in. But don't make it right. this whole thing where, oh, we feel bad right now, we'll give it to him. Because that, it just kind of really takes away from well, what could have been a great moment or may not have been a great moment. And you just say, well, hey, you had a good career, but you, you just didn't have the stats. And that's understandable. The, the stats speak for themselves. So that's all I had for third base. Did you have any others? I did not. The thing about Santo, and I'm going to bring up with him, is, and as I've referenced him working on a basketball history project recently here, there's there's some basketball players where, uh, you know, I'll go back to my, one of my favorites, Pete Maravich, born too soon, right? Can you imagine him in the late 20-teens with the NBA the way that it is now? With I said that about Larry threes. Bird. Yeah, he never had a three-point line. And Larry Bird, again, the threes were not emphasized enough. Absolutely. And, you, you know, you can look at Mitch Richmond, Mark Price, which is near and dear to my heart, whatever. Ron Santo, you could make the same argument for him because it's like, well, the guy never played in the playoffs. Well, here's the thing, though. In 69, it was a near miss to the Miracle Mets. And I know the Cubs didn't have a lot of great years during his career, but look at the way it is now. Baseball today, is, is and it's been this way at least the last 20 years, and I'd argue probably going all the way back to 95 uh, with, with the whole setup with the three divisions, it's like March Madness. Who's to say Ron Santo wouldn't have been in a World Series in 69 or some other year? Look at the playoff fields these days. In those days, I mean, he played a good part of his career when only the, the pennant winner made the World Series. And then from there, the divisional playoffs. Wow, two teams out of the National League. That's mighty white of you to have it be that wide open yeah. relative to today. So who's to say Ron Santo wouldn't have been uh, you know, getting some October glory along the way? And you could say this for a lot of other guys, too. But we remember him for the heartbreak of he never played in October versus today. Do you realize what kind of a bottom feeder you got to be to have never played in October? Yeah, exactly. It's like, and then when I see those stats where they say, "Well, Randy Orozarena has more home runs than <laughs> Reggie Jackson," and it's like, "Well, yeah, because he plays in like seventeen more playoff series in in one season." But yeah, yeah. Back then you had four teams, and if you made it to the playoffs, and it was really special. Um, but yeah, that's why when you look at. When you look at postseason statistics of games played and RBIs, yeah. it's all from the last 20 years, and it's it really yeah. just watered down the product. I understand. Oh, Bernie Williams, Bernie Williams. <laughs> you know, Andy Pettit has the most wins, I think, in history. And you go, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. That, that Well, he's well, Andy Pettit should be in the Hall of Fame because he has the most postseason wins. Of course he did. Of course he did. I, 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 give me the ball. I could probably win a couple of games at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this is where when we talk about apples and oranges throughout history, there's no greater difference than that. And and, and Santo is just one of the guys that kind of comes to my mind as far as born in the wrong time, because I don't think the Cubs necessarily were in really huge contention too many of the years in his career. But it, certainly in 69, he would have been in the playoffs under an expanded format. And who the heck knows what would have happened? Because, uh, again, they were a team that was just as good as the Mets who went on to win it all. So. Uh, who knows? But a, a lot of those Cubs players, history would have been even different. And that's the whole thing here, too. The tragic heroes of, you know, him and Billy Williams and Ernie Banks. I mean, you'll never see that kind of stuff again because it's like, oh, if this guy would have only ever even been in the playoffs. Once again, how much of a bottom feeder do you got to be to be an excellent player and make it through your whole career today without ever being in the playoffs? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. no more no more curse of the Bambino and the Black Cat and the <laughs> 
everything. Ugh. Right. Um, so for outfield, you're going to see a common theme by a lot of these I bring up. And by the way, the common theme is not just because they're all black. I just want to say that out right now. <laughs> they ju- it's just a coincidence that they happen to be black. But uh, okay. so a couple of these guys that ended up getting into the Hall of Fame on like the last ballot, which were Jim Rice and Andre Dawson. And Jim uh, Jim Rice was a feared feared slugger in his day and you and I, I don't need to tell you because you you grew up and you watched him and as much as you hate Boston that right. Jim Rice is one of those guys that just can hit the ball but again you look at his stats you know, I mean if you want to talk about not winning a World Series obviously they you know how we know in Boston lore and how you know we have to hear about how tortured they were for so many years oh the <laughs> tortured Red Sox yeah uh, you know your basketball team's winning championship after championship right now so I don't want to I don't want to hear it. Just like with right. uh, all the Cubs, it's like, yeah, you, had, you won six basketball championships in a decade. Don't tell me about, oh, the Cubs just can't seem to get over the hump. Stop it. But anyways, yeah, I got I got a stat for all those self-pity a-holes. 52 years. Yeah, exactly. 52. Yeah, now, now we can reset and look at places like San Diego or Buffalo are up on that list, too. But um, well, We're back to five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Jim Rice, J- again... Great player at his time, but I'm not putting great players in the Hall of Fame. I'm putting Hall of Fame players in the Hall of Fame. And Andre Dawson's a guy that, again, a nice player. Uh, had, I think, over 400 home runs and played for a number of years. But a, a guy that it took him until the la- the very last ballot. And I'm not saying that he's not deserving of the Hall of Fame, but if he was so deserving to be in the Hall of Fame in 2010, why wasn't he deserving in 05? or 03, or 2009. You know, why did it take until the last ballot where everyone kind of looked and said, hey, you know, this uh, this Andre Dawson, you know, he won an MVP with the Cubs. He was great with the Expos for all those years. It's just, he played with, you know, Florida Marlin legend Andre Dawson. And uh, again, I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, but why all of a sudden is he good enough for the Hall of Fame by 2010, but not few years leading up to that the only theory that i have here is that there might have been a little bit of a stigma attached to him and and hopefully people will catch the self-mockery as i say this as the kids would say a little sus because (laughs) the the 87 mvp award when he played for a last place team now i've never been a guy who's been a literalist on most valuable player i don't think necessarily being on a bad team should preclude you from it. And so I never begrudged him that, but I know a lot of people did throughout baseball thought he should have given that one back. Uh, you know, maybe not literally, but at least uh, figuratively given it back. And uh, I can only guess that there was the stigma that stayed on him. And at the end they were kind of like, ah, listen, we shouldn't hold that against him. Uh, again, I really enjoyed seeing him play for Montreal. Those were great teams in the, in the early eighties. Yeah, Warren Cromarty and, uh, and- Ellis Valentine and, you know, those were, those were some special teams. Uh, You know, uh, Gary Carter, when he was still there, I mean, those were, those were great fun teams to watch. And, uh, you know, so I have a real fondness for him. So I may not come down in exactly the same place that, that you do, but I will say he's one of these guys where if, if you think he makes it or if you think he misses it, it's by about an inch either way. You know, I was looking at that 1987 MVP race, and that was mm-hmm. the year of the home run where these guys were just yes. like guys you wouldn't even think of were hitting home runs. Uh, but I looked at the NL MVP voting, mm-hmm. and oh boy, 
Oz, the aforementioned Ozzie Smith came in second in MVP voting that year. <laughs> I rest Smith, my case. Yeah. J- Jack Clark came in third. He had 35 home runs and hit 286, which solid season. Tim Wallach, Will Clark, Daryl Stra- previous podcast guest Tim uh, Daryl Strawberry. Um, it, you know, it looked like a dogfight for that. But yeah, Andre Dawson. I think they looked and said, "Well, the guy's leading the league in home runs and RBIs, and is hitting 287." So. I think we I think we have to at this time. It was it was one of those years where, you know how the next year Kirk Gibson won over Daryl Strawberry, and you know people want to make it a racial thing, but uh, Kirk Gibson held, was the glue that kept that team together. A, a team that wasn't very talented. You had guys like Tracy Woodson and um, you know uh, Mike Sosha and um, uh, 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 Mickey Hatcher. They weren't the greatest players, but Kirk Gibson was the bread and butter on that team because he comes over to the Dodgers after the collusion scandal and was able to get out of his contract with the Tigers. A guy that was a, you know, a Sparky Anderson said he was going to be the next Mickey Mantle. He didn't pan out that way, but he was the reason that they won that World Series and not just because that game one home run off Eckersley. He was a great player on that team and you know, sometimes you look and say, "Is it the is it the statistics or is it the best player uh, that that kind of keeps that team and makes it go?" And that was one of those years where they looked at kind of like what Andrew McCutcheon a few years ago at the Pirates. He's the he didn't have the most, the gaudiest stats in the world, but he helped them get to the playoffs for the first time since '92. Yes, and that's the thing where again, I think people really held that against Andre Dawson was that uh, there were a lot of guys whose uh, you know intangibles, if you want to call it that, were 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 better than his because uh, they were on winning teams and uh, they didn't get it and he got it. That year being as weird as it was with the home runs, that was the year. That was like Wade Box's career year for home runs. I think he hit like twenty three, and it was a thing where good old professional nerd George Will. I remember that yeah. like he postulated. How about that? Yeah, a guy who probably was in the hip to be square video from back then. But, uh, you know, he he had some kind of tortured postulation about I think they were sewing the baseballs in Haiti or wherever it was, whatever country it was mm. the previous winter. They'd had a revolution there. And like I say that overcome by the joy of being free men, that they were perhaps winding the baseballs a little tighter with their excitement. I'm like, where do you pull this crap out of your ass, George? Will come on. It's worse than your political takes. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah. Where's he pulled the rest of it out? out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, nevertheless, though, that's one of those things where if if we were playing like a game show of like, was that a real George Will quote or not? I mean, you'd absolutely <laughs> say yes, it was. It was. It, that sounds like a thing George Will would make up, and it was. <laughs> I put this guy next guy in the uh, outfield category, even though he spent most of his career as a DH, and that's Harold Baines. And that's Her- one where. I- I've always had a soft spot for him, so this is this is rough for me. I enjoyed watching him play back in the day. I think my mom liked him too. So it's like, I hear you on that. I know he's more of a longevity argument and some of these other things here, but I just like my my heart won't let me go there, Tony. But I I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yep, yeah, mine because I mean he played for like 22 seasons and had a, you know how many stints with the White Sox, and I think they retired his number while he was still playing because they loved him in Chicago so much and. He ended up going right. to, I believe, Texas, and then he went to Oakland in that. Uh, if well, he went to Oakland in '90 because they, yeah, they had him for that team that lost to the Cincinnati Reds and got swept that year, and uh-huh. played with Baltimore and a couple other teams, and actually had a cup of coffee with the Indians in '99. 
uh, right. where he did virtually nothing. But um, he, uh, but Harold Baines is a guy that, I mean, you look at his stats, you go, I, he had more hits than I remembered. But for a guy who played that long, again, another guy that, especially when I was, maybe, maybe this is just me because I, I remember him in the 90s instead of the 80s where he was playing outfield and first base, and he was a terrible outfielder. He was a terrible fielder. And that's why he, he, he had to be a, a he had to be a, a designated hitter at that point. Um, but when I watched Harold Baines growing up, and again, it was like Rafael Palmero, I never once thought of him as, wow, this guy is Cooperstown bound. And he was just like, again, another guy who was a very good player, but certainly not a guy who should be heading to the Finger Lakes region for the Hall of Fame ceremony. <laughs> So a guy who did nothing with the Indians at the end of his career. So you're saying that he was a recipient of the Steve Carlton, Phil Necro, Ellis Burks trophy then? The Keith Hernandez trophy, yes. Keith Hernandez, yeah. How can I forget him? <laughs> and then then the other guy who I th- – this one confused me for a long time, especially when you match his stats up with a guy like Don Mattingly, and that's Kirby Puckett. And Kirby, I think, is one of those guys that just didn't play long enough for me because I wanted to see him keep it going into – towards the 2000s, and he gets hit in the eye uh, by, by Dennis Martinez at the end of the 95 season and never played again. And, you know, he won a, I think he won a batting title. He was an all-star. He was a fan favorite in, in Minneapolis. He won two championships, had the, the great catch on Ron Gant's ball in the, in the game six of the 91 World Series and hits the walk-off off Charlie Liebrandt. And, you know, Kirby Puckett was a nice player, but I just didn't think he played long enough for him to not only be in the Hall of Fame, but a first ballot Hall of Famer. Well, that was the thing, too, where, you know, part of it was, I mean, he got hit in the eye. And whether or not that played a role in what happened in his actual demise from this earth, what uh, he seems to know 100 percent sure but there was the thought that he was almost kind of martyred from how it happened so it's almost the reverse of the perception that we talked about in the previous segment with Kurt Schilling of if you're perceived to be a good guy or a bad guy which again is incredibly ironic perhaps because I think it was the Sports Illustrated thing that came out subsequently and I think it came out after he passed away but it was like holy crap all this stuff of like uh, had another chick on the side, allegations of wife beating, like all these freaking things. Like, wow, you know, and I don't know how many of them were ever substantiated or not. I, I think some of them might have been. So ironically, he seemed to make it there because of his image, because everybody loved Kirby Puckett, uh, but, you know, feet of clay, at least to some degree, I guess, it was certainly relative to his image. He's another one of these guys. If you think he's in or you think he's out, it's probably by an inch on either side. I think the longevity was there, but but just just barely. But I'm I'm also a guy that doesn't think Albert Bell's longevity was there. So these no. things are very subjective. Yeah, I think so too. And and you're talking about with Kirby Puckett, where he went in pretty quick. And I thought, now I I've softened on this over the years because it's another guy I watched growing up, and I thought was a recipient of not very good shortstops in the National League was Barry Larkin. And I've softened yeah. on that, and I've said, okay, maybe he is a Hall of Famer. But it really seemed like they rushed Barry Larkin into the Hall of Fame because at the time, 10 years ago, they were looking for anybody who was not attached to the steroid era. And it just seemed like it was one of those like, oh, yep, absolutely. And, you know, in 2001, when you were starting to see these monster home runs, they looked at somebody like Kirby Puckett who hit 335 each year, and they said, well, yeah, absolutely, put him in. 
I agree. I think it was basically a function of the time as far as helping them to get enough votes to get over the top. And Larkin is a guy where, and, and again, you know, I think he belongs, but it's another one of these ones here. I mean, if you put a gun to my head, you know, I'd probably be stammering a lot to try and justify it. Because, again, you know, he was, you know, it, he's almost an in-between kind of a guy, right? Because, like, for most of baseball history, and, and the, the, the ones that I said I'd throw out, most of the players in baseball history regarded as the best shortstops were, you know, it's primarily defensively. And, and then again, you know, as you said, you get into the new era and A-Rod and Noma Gassiapa and all of them guys, but like Larkin's kind of in the middle there. He's a weird kind of a case. Larkin was not a slappy, but he was never like a 45 home run guy either. No, he'd hit so you, what, he'd hit you 15 you home runs and hit you, you know, 310. Right. And, and that's the whole thing is that. I don't, you know, I, I'm sure if I was to go on baseball reference, they'd prove me a liar, but it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of real firm comps for him throughout baseball history, at least at shortstop. So it, it's, a, it's a tough one. That, that's like trying to, you know, eat your, you know, uh, jello with a fork. But yeah. ultimately, I mean, push comes to shove. I, I think he belongs in, but just, just the fact that I got to put this much, you know, thought or rationalization into it just shows you that, you know, whichever way you go on that, I wouldn't fault you. And then uh, the last outfielder I had on my list was Tim Raines. And it, it gets, it, you know, I'm not going to repeat what I've been saying about some of the others, but it took Tim Raines all that time to get in there. And a, a guy who was a basically an afterthought at the beginning of his career, and they actually tried him to play infield when he was with Montreal because, like we mentioned about uh, Valentine and Cromartie and Dawson in the outfield. And uh, they all they also had a guy who was a pretty good hitter. And uh, his name was Terry Francona, who played for Montreal and had a bad knee injury that allowed uh, Tim Raines basically the opportunity to start playing outfield. And his career took off from there, and he was a he was a speedster on the bases. He was a slap hitter. Uh, but then he eventually, as he got older, was able to get a little bit of power. But kind of like with Kenny Lofton, I always thought Tim Raines was a, was a guy that just – the second half of his career was not spectacular. And I want to see basically most of your career to be spectacular to be in the Hall of Fame. And Tim Raines, by the time he ended with Montreal, he he really was not a threat on the bases anymore. He was not really a threat at the plate anymore. He was just a guy that oh he's he comes with longevity. He's a uh, he's a good leader. Uh, he's not going to hurt you when you put him out there. He'll hit two sixty. You know he'll get you. T- 10 home runs a year. You can DH him some days, uh, have him hit against lefties. Um, but when he played with the White Sox, he was with the Yankees. He had a quick cup of coffee with the Orioles and the uh, uh, the Marlins, for God's sake, and the Athletics. Yeah. In fact, I think he came back to Montreal, and then he rejoined. Uh, his son was playing when Tim Raines Jr. I think they, they tried to pull a Griffey's with them. And he played with his son, but I think it was in the minor leagues with the Ottawa Lynx. I could be wrong about that. But Tim Raines, a guy that first half of his career, very good. Second half of his career, not that spectacular and not worthy, in my opinion, of heading to Cooperstown. Yeah, I mean, I I, I basically agree with you. This is another one that's really kind of tough here. Uh, A guy where, again, surprised it wasn't held against him more, the federal cocaine trial. That's the guy who Mm -hmm. famously... Wouldn't slide into second base the one time because he had a vial of coke in the back pocket. So <laughs> yeah, he slid that. head first. Yeah, slid head first. And Tim, then, Tim Rock know, like, Reigns. Yes, yes, right. You know, we know where the rock comes from. <laughs> and then 
you know, the back nine of his career, I mean, if you had a number of years where you can be summed up as the poor man's Chili Davis, yeah, that really hurts your Cooperstown cred. <laughs> Is that where they named the, the restaurant Chili's after it was Chili Davis? <laughs> That's right. Should have been anyways. <laughs> um, and do you have any other outfielders on the list before you had to pitch? I do not. I just, uh, I just have uh, one pitcher. I will say, by the way, I, I think he might have been an outfielder. So somebody for this is this is a thing for the previous uh, you know segment, but uh, maybe it's not as uh, a little more PG thirteen than that as far as this player. Somebody who I saw on lists of guys who maybe should be in the Hall of Fame but aren't. Is it Mel this Hall? Feels, no, uh, this feels <laughs> he's got a name that I feel like it comes right out of the memes of the fall of twenty twenty one. A guy named this is I think late eighteenth century, Urban Shocker. You gotta love that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. We, we saw that on a bar floor in Columbus recently, but yeah, Urban Shock. How about that? There was a, I, 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 since we're behind the paywall, I got to find this. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I got to find this because, no, not Nigel Wilson, but there's a, there's a, oh yeah, there there's a player who played for the Cle- Cleveland franchise at the time named Jay Clark, but they, he was named Nig Clark. I'm not kidding. The uh, uh, was it 19? It was 1905. It was very. You were seeing a lot of strange names that were popping up on uh, on these lists, and yeah, I, I think because he was darker complected, he might have been Italian. That the they named him the now rather unfortunate nickname. I, I'm going to watch into my uh, Jonesy and Riley imitation from Letter Kenny. That doesn't sound PC, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Who else did I have on my – okay, so let's go to pitchers here. Oh, you said he only had one pitcher. Who was that? Uh, this is somebody where, again, uh, had a, 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 a really, really, really strong six years punctuated by a World Series uh, run that was very, very memorable here. Uh, it is the, uh, in American life, it is the second most person named Robin Roberts, uh, yes. a huge legend in the Philly area. And uh, again, just, just looking at his career outside of those six years, I think it's encapsulated by a little bit by what you said about Reigns, about you, you want to see it more prolonged through the course of a career. If somebody has a long career, you want to see him be Maybe not at that level the whole way. That might not be realistic because that that's forcing you to be one of the best of all time if you're going to be at that level. But maybe not such a gap between that and your other years when you might have been a little more mediocre. And Robin Roberts, to me, uh, you know, throw eggs at me, Philly sports fans, but that's a guy I'd take out. My my favorite Robin Roberts story, and I'm not talking about the baseball player, <laughs> and I'm not even talking about the you know the the sports slash newscaster either, but uh, oh. our. Uh, uh, Chuck Booms, if you remember him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we were at we were at a place called Willby Brewing Company, and uh, which that's now gone, and I don't talk to Booms anymore. But I remember I was out with him one night, and he he's one of those guys that you know when I'm at a bar I'll talk to like one person or a couple of people, or I sit at the bar we watch the TV, and he's one of those guys who has to go to every table uh, just to talk to everybody. And I I don't know what the conversation you know when you hear just like just chatter in a bar, but it just all sounds, it's just all coagulated, the, the the noise. And all of a sudden there was like a, just almost a small break in the background noise. And I just hear Chuck Boom say, and Robin Roberts tampon. 
I don't know oh. the context of it. <laughs> that, 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 that is foul. But why that are you is... talking? Why? Why did this come up at any point? But I, I started laughing because of that situation where you're like, you're t- why would you talk about Robin Roberts tampon? First of all, are we talking about the baseball player or the newscaster? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I don't even want to consider that, which by the way, I'm going to say as far as booms goes, never met him personally. Although like you, I, I have some friends who are friends with him slash work with him slash whatever. And it's a thing where, and, and he feels like the kind of guy where if you listen to him on the radio and from the stuff I've heard about him, that like, it's easy to have a sense of who the guy really is in a lot of ways anyways. He seems like the kind of guy that would put a shiv in his neck if he heard anybody say, remember Chuck Booms? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, pr- I would not doubt it. I haven't spoken to the man in many years, but... Uh, that would wound him greatly, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I had a number of pitchers, actually, and I could go through the list pretty quick here. Okay. Um, the I- I'm going to give a couple of recent examples that really piss me off, and uh, one of them was Jack Morris. And... This has nothing to do with him quitting on the Indians in 1994, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, which, by the way, here's here's a, the only thing I remember Jack Morris on the Indians in '94 was he was the pitcher when Cecil Fielder hit a foul ball that Sandy Alomar made one of the greatest catchers uh, plays a catcher has ever made, where he's like leaping over the backstop to make this catch, and Jack Morris wow. was the pitcher at the time. So that's the only thing I remember Jack Morris doing with the Indians at that time. But Here's a guy that winning his pitcher of the 1980s. Good, congratulations. You had four man rotations, and you had an, I mean, Jack Morris had an ERA that was upwards of five. Um, he was he basically he's there in the Hall of Fame because of pitching in the 91 World Series. That he pitched 10 innings. Yeah, great game. Jack Morris was an ace for for the Tigers, but not every team's ace should be in the Hall of Fame. He yeah he pitched a no hitter. He was a, a part of that 84 Tigers team. He was the ace of that team. He started basically every opening day for his entire career. Ends up going to the Blue Jays, wins another uh, two championships, but he was a bum in both of them. Um, and then, yeah, he fizzled out in his career with the Reds and the Indians at the end. But um, a, a guy that very good Hall of Fame, but they, it, it just seemed like that was – Hey, remember that game one of the World Series? Yeah, that was a great game. How about you? That's a Hall of Fame guy right there. Mm, not necessarily. I've seen I've seen some great pitching performances by guys not even close to the Hall of Fame. And yes, I get it. It was Game Seven of the World Series, one of the great games in the history of baseball. But I'm again, I'm not. Do, do you know what the walk off hit there was? Gene Larkin. I'm not putting Gene Larkin in the Hall of Fame. Some guys make great performances when it counts, and uh, you're putting a guy in who has a really high ERA, in my opinion, and a guy that had the benefit of having some pretty good Tiger teams that can really mash the ball. And there is a little bit of it there. Uh, A little bit of it sort of is the tenor of the times because ERAs sort of across the board were up in the 80s. So there is a little bit of that to it, I will say. Uh, and if you're measuring him, you know, to his peers at the time, it comes out a little bit more forgiving. Uh, although, yeah, I mean, com- compared just, you know, to, to the best pitchers from other eras, that is undeniably a fugly ERA. And I'm going to guess probably whip also, even though we didn't talk much about whip back then. And, uh, yeah, I mean, once again, this is a case where, I mean, I can't really argue with you on this. I saw him on so many lists for so long of, oh, one of the best pitchers not to be in. Maybe I got brainwashed to where 
he was overdue for being in. So I come down on the other side of it. But but again, man, I mean, we're, we're both very, very close to a very thin line. That that guy's a borderline Hall of Famer, if, if any, you know, if he is in. Here's another one that really bothered me over um, uh, recently in the last couple of years, and that was Mike Mussina. And Mussina, they, they say, well, he had t- 270 wins. And I'm like, okay, again, we're – I like how we like to cherry pick wins and losses where you're like, oh, well, you know, you could get a guy who has nine wins in a season, but he had a low ERA and can win the uh, win the Cy Young. But then you we cherry pick that and say, no, no, but he had 270 wins. Okay, so what? Those Baltimore teams that he pitched on in the 90s, you had Brady Anderson hitting 50 home runs with his sideburns and God only knows what he was putting in his system. Robbie Alomar played on those teams. You still had... I mean, and this is like the whole era. So you had guys like Mike Devereaux had good good years. Uh, Eric Davis had a nice bounce back year. Uh, Rafael Palmero played with them for years, and Ripken and uh, Chris Hoyles was the best, probably power hitting catcher of his time for a while, uh, next to Mike Piazza. Um, so uh, uh, B.J. Surhoff was a great player for him for a while. So he had the benefit of playing for some really good offenses, and he was able to get a lot of those wins at that time. Yes, he was a good fielding pitcher too. But again, uh, an ace of a team, not necessarily. I mean, if you're going to put an ace who pitched for a number of years for one team uh, and put him in the Hall of Fame, then put Dave Steve in the Hall of Fame. But again, I'm not putting Dave Steve in the Hall of Fame. Mike Miocena was a good pitcher for his time. Uh, in, in fact, you could probably say he was a great pitcher for his time. But only one time in his career, he had 20 wins in a season. That was his final year with the Yankees. Um, again, good player, good pitcher. But I just, I, another one of those guys that I saw his entire career and never once thought, hey, this guy's a Hall of Famer. I, I just didn't see it. You know what's funny, Tony, is, uh, again, relative to expectations and where you have somebody pegged. So in the course of your very excellent setup there on on Mike Mussina, which I agree with, by the way, because I think he's close but no cigar, my thought in my head, and I had enough time to look this up while you were going here, thank you, baseball reference, he felt like a guy that a lot of years to me went 15 and 12 with a 375 ERA, and I wasn't exactly right on the money with that, and he only ever lost more than 11 games once 11 and five with a 379 right there in uh, 2000 uh, so i might have been a little off on the losses but boy uh you know that's you look at his career and actually you get deeper into it and he wasn't even below four most years so that's yeah i mean my, my sense that a 15 and 12 375 guy consistently is not a guy i'd put in and that is actually where the, he was at least in the ballpark of where I thought he was on all of this. So I agree with you. I, I act again within, you know, the, the semblance of the times here, it was the steroid era. It was harder to pitch. Then I give him a little bit of grace, but not enough to make it. Um, I, I, I my relievers that I put in here, we cut, we kind of talked about in the previous podcast, Bruce Suter, Goose Gossage, Trevor Hoffman, Raleigh fingers. Um, I think, um, I'll give you two of them. Actually, I'll give you a couple of more that had pretty good stats, but again, didn't have the 300 wins and didn't get to that level. And one of them, Catfish Hunter, of course, uh-huh. known as being the first free agent in you know in history and it broke the bank and everything. Kind of, it really did change baseball. And I don't know if it was for the better. And the other one, Burt Blylevin, that 
as much as I liked Burt Blylevin and had one of the great breaking balls of all time and one of the top strikeout guys of his era, he won two championships, one in 79 with the Pirates and one in 87 with the Twins. But again, you know, he was another one of those that took him till his final year on the ballot. And if he wasn't worthy of being in there by the late 90s when he eventually uh, was was eligible, what makes you think by 2011 that he was ready to be in the Hall of Fame at that time? Well, there's the other thing, too, of, uh, and he was a guy that I came across when I was preparing for this segment and, you know, refreshing myself on his career. He was a guy that seemed to have Rick Berry disease as far as a disproportionate number of teammates in different places thinking he was a D-bag. So, I mean, that has to play in a little bit here, too, right? Like, you know, how are you in the clubhouse? I mean, being the nicest guy in the world, if you're the male equivalent of, male, uh, of uh, you know, Mother Teresa, that's not enough to get you in, but it's a thing where, if you're just consistently a guy who seems to be bringing down the vibe, which I'm just going to say enough people were saying it in enough places where there's smoke, there's usually fire that has to play into it as well. And if you're a borderline guy, I can see where that uh, very possibly could and should play against you. And then a couple of more guys that uh, I'll bring up here uh, that I had that bounced around for a number of years that, I, I just like they helped teams and I'm not going to say that you should take their plaques off of the hall of fame. And I'm not saying that they're not hall of fame worthy because they reached those milestones, but they just, it, it, when you look back at their stats and you realize they, they pitched in an era where there was a lot more leeway that uh, they're not getting yanked after they throw two balls in a row um, that, but then they also bounced around from team to team and you go, why, if you were that great and valuable to a team, why did you bounce around from a team, you know, you were on like eight teams in the last 10 years? And those guys uh, that I'll mention are Don Sutton and Gaylord Perry. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Perry I got a soft spot for. I haven't had him on the FDH lounge. Uh, and uh, It was uh, just being able to make a few Dorothy full-time jokes with him. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I see both sides of that one here, uh, not to be a politician or anything like that, because again, you know, at their best, they were really, really strong. But one of the things I think that would mitigate against them and cause me to agree with you is uh, the back end of their career, what that was fueled by, because Gaylord Perry is pretty famous and pretty unrepentant as a guy who cheated. But uh, Don Sutton, it was an open secret. There was a lot of scuffing going on later in his career as well. So that's one of those things I think that's got to, particularly if we're going to be taking into account, you know, steroids and other things like that, if we're going to go to any kind of form of cheating, whatever, uh, just the amount that was involved with those two guys uh, is not a good look for uh, ones that were borderline candidates to begin with. I mean, Don Sutton was one of those that he just, like he was there and they had him play for teams that were like had pretty good offenses, like the Angels at the end, and he was on the Harvey Wallbangers, uh, Milwaukee Brewers in '82, and he was right. one of those guys that, you know, he'll give up five runs, but his team scored eight runs, and he was able to get a bunch of those wins and stack up uh, a lot of them towards the end. He did that with the Dodgers too. I I just never thought Don Sutton was the guy that you were thinking like, wow. And, and I guess in a way, Phil Necro could be kind of in that category too, but. He's in the longevity category. He's a knuckleballer. He had 300-plus wins, too, um, and pitched pitch for such a long time and redefined that position that I'm surprised there aren't more knuckleballers in 
today's league with all these guys throwing a hundred, wouldn't you want a guy who could throw a knuckleball every so often? And yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm always you know puzzled that that doesn't happen more. And, and by the way, Don Sutton, when you're talking about getting propped up by all those great offenses, so you're saying he was Andy Pettit before Andy Pettit? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, and, and Gaylord Perry is another one of those guys that also uh, I think it was a traditional bad guy in the clubhouse. It, at that time, I mean, he he infamously fought with Frank Robinson in 1975, and um, I, I think he just wore out his welcome with a lot of these places. And you, you got to kind of look at that in those times where, yeah, he had 300 wins, and that meant something. But he also pitched for over 20 years, and that. Uh, but you know, I, I guess in another way, I, I got to respect it because we will never see that again. There will never be another 300-game winner, and the last one was Randy Johnson in, in 2009 with the Giants. And it's kind of sad that when you talk about some of the unbreakable records or records that won't be matched anymore, I mean, clearly no one will ever touch Ricky Henderson's record. Um, I, I, I Maybe there could be a 56-game you know, hitting streak at some point, and you know, maybe that there's a couple of other things, but I, I just don't see 300 as a viable option with the way that, I mean, you watch the World Series, and I was watching the other night with the Braves in, in the World Series when we, we were recording this, that uh, I, I forgot who it was who was pitching, was throwing a no-hitter, and they pulled him out of the game. Because analytics say that, well, you got to make sure that, uh, you know, this and that. And you say, he's throwing a no-hitter. I, I I must be of old school where, I mean, did did they throw, pull Don Larson? Oh, you're throwing a perfect game. But, you know, you're up to uh, 87 pitches, and you're going to be batting next inning. So we're going to go with the bullpen here. Uh, it's it's unbelievable what, what analytics has done to the sport, which is why you're not going to see. And, and now that I think about it, outside of Miguel Cabrera, I, I don't really know of anybody else who's going to get 3,000 hits anytime soon either. Well, here's the thing, uh, Tony. I read a very excellent article recently, and I wish I could credit who it was, but if anybody goes on the Sports Illustrated website, I think you'll find it there. Um, it was talking about the upcoming CBA and about uh, – because everything you're saying is absolutely true. But, again, baseball can always legislate certain things here. Uh, when they got rid of the, you know, the, the, the spitter back at the end of the 1910s, uh, when they lowered the mound in 1969. And now, here's what might be on the table. And it sucks that it's because of politics and off-field things like money and whatever. But you know who's really unhappy about the marginalization of big, big-time big starter pitchers? It's the union. Because those guys are big, big, big drivers. And, and the thought of number one starting pitchers becoming fungible terrifies them. So what you might see in the new CBA is a universal DH, but a universal DH that only goes so long as the starting pitchers in the game. Say goodbye to relief pitchers starting games once that starts. Say goodbye to your starting pitcher automatically getting yanked the second time through the order. If we change the incentives, then we may start to see these kind of things again. But short of changing the incentives, Tony, you're right. We'll never see another 300-game winner. And because of a lot of these changes with CBA over the years, that that's why guys like Harold Baines and Mike Mussina and, and the guys that we've been talking about, they're looking at them differently than we did at the time by saying, well, gosh, you know, I don't know if we're going to see many guys have that many hits or that many RBIs. And, you know, so yep. it, what happens is it starts watering down the greatness of the sport and who came before that and all the pioneers. So to the point where now we're, 
you know, if, if we're considering putting Bobby Gritch in the Hall of Fame just because he had a good wins above replacement, you go, then it doesn't mean anything. It's turning into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We're putting rap acts in now. So, you know, when you start doing that, it loses the feel. And, you know, my, my for Leah, my wife, uh, got me last year for our wedding present. She got me and we haven't been able to go because of COVID, but the uh, Hall of Fame experience, it's a VIP thing where you kind of go back behind the exhibits and get a chance to see some of the artifacts. And I'm just thinking to myself, how soon until I get kicked out of there before I start shooting my mouth off of it? Who's in the Hall of Fame and who's not in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thing, know, you... Mike Mussina is a bum. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're going to expect a certain amount of decorum out of you going in there. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you raise excellent points here because there's a lot of plaques. When you go there, at least you know it going in. There's a lot of plaques that don't deserve to be there. And there's some that aren't there that do deserve to be there. And through the course of your two podcasts here, you know, we've been able to cover this. And, uh, you know, that's the frustration, I think, that's associated with any kind of, uh, you know, sports hall of fame when you go there. The last one I have to check off my list is hockey. I've been to the other three and uh, still got to get to the hockey one. I've heard that it's tremendous. Uh, I will tell you that one of our good pals from the old Sports Talk Network days, Joe Lindway, this will make you laugh, is that Joe, Joe Lindway, you mean these... uh, O.J. Simpson's best friend? Yes, yes. The classic what, photo. What a, what, a, what a character that guy is. That he, from, from getting an old pack of tobacco cards at one of these you know shows that he was at, like he found like some kind of incredible deal at a collectibles show that he shouldn't have been able to get. He basically bartered those to get a backstage tour of the Hockey Hall of Fame that's oh, not wow. available to the rest of the public. That's hilarious. Like, that's that's a that's Joe Lindway in a nutshell being able to make that happen. Well, Rick, we we just crossed the two hour mark on our call <laughs> with the two podcasts together. Uh, uh, give your plugs one more time for folks who may not have remembered the first podcast that was posted. Okay, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it for anything fantasy sports, fantasydrafthelp.com. And uh, where nothing is off topic, the FDHlounge.com. We are just about to cross our 1,400 number on uh, many episodes of that uh, after 152 full-length episodes previously at the late lamented Sports Talk Network. Excellent. Well, uh, Rick, it was good talking to you as always. Usually our conversations, they're never 15 minutes. They're about two to three hours. So. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, right we'll, we'll we'll have to get you on again uh one of these times i'll have to get a three-way podcast uh, on zoom with R- russ cohen because uh first of all i want to hear more keith hernandez stuff <laughs> yes <laughs> and yes. um and, and a little little teaser as i said before russ and i are going to have some stuff to talk about uh in the near future it seems premature to say anything uh, on air i'll hold that for off air but uh, Russ and I are working on something very exciting that uh, I alluded to just kind of briefly. Oh, I, I'm looking forward to it then. 